Well, it's a bit strange, but now that I've turned 40, a disturbing thing has begun to happen to me. People have started to ask me about my health. (laughs) How's your health? Are you healthy? It's a bit of a startling question, really. And it's a difficult one to answer. It's actually made me wonder, how do you decide if you're healthy? What's the yardstick? What's What's the key measurement? Good blood pressure? Normal rate of breathing? Body mass index? Eyesight? Number of tablets needed to get through a day? Number of teeth? It's a tricky question. And so when I get asked, how's my health, I just sort of say yes, more in hope than anything else. It'd be helpful, though, I reckon, to have a sure and simple way to know if I'm healthy. Because I figure the question is only going to come more frequently. (laughs) But that's my health. What about the health of evening church? If we wanted to know how healthy evening church is, what should be our measure? How should we decide? Our numbers are going up a bit again on Sunday nights. Is that an indicator of health? We have a high percentage of people in small group Bible studies during the week. Is, is that the key indicator? There are about 60 daily reading Bibles in circulation out there. Is that a sign of good health? If we had to choose just one thing, one indicator of the health of evening church, what should it be? Our passage tonight actually helps us with that question. Um, In 1 Corinthians, we've been slowly working our way through a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church that on any count had serious health issues. Immorality, idolatry, lawsuits, marriage problems. As we've been working our way through the letter, we've been seeing the Apostle has been dealing with all of them. But tonight, we reach an issue that earns the Apostle's harshest treatment, his most passionate words, his his strongest language. Of all the issues that he's been dealing with, it's this one in our passage tonight that appears the most serious. And I take it, therefore, that for the Apostle Paul, this was the one that mattered most. If you ask the Apostle Paul for the key indicator of the health of evening church, this would be the one. And that makes it really important for us then, doesn't it? So let's make sure our Bibles are open at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, at the passage Jen read for us, and let's ask God to help us to hear him clearly And hear him obediently. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once more for your word, for its its life, its power. And Father, we pray that we would hear you clearly tonight. But more than that, we would hear you obediently. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there's an outline on the inside of your bulletin. Probably be helpful to have that open in front of you. And up to point one. On that outline and verse 17, let me read it, verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Last time, like last time in our our, our passage tonight, the issue centres again on the Corinthians gathering, on their meeting um, together as a church. And what's immediately clear from that verse is that instead of their gathering being a good thing, it's a bad thing. They come together, Paul says, not for the better, but for the worse. And so the apostle has no praise for them. It is a very strong and a harsh start. What's going on? Verse 18. 
in the first place. I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. See, when they come together, Paul, Paul has heard, they are not together because there are divisions among them. There is a gulf between them. And that gulf was especially evident in their shared meal. Verse 20. When you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. See, what makes their gathering so bad? When they come together, when they come together to eat, they're not together at all. They don't eat together. Some get nothing, others get too much. And Paul, therefore, has no praise for them at all. What's the big deal here? We've noticed before, haven't we, in the letter, how the initial problem or the, or the surface problem is really like a symptom of something more deeper, something more significant. Last week, the surface issue was what you wore or didn't wear on your head. But the real issue was the relationship between men and women within church. Same thing's happening here, really. The surface issue is eating. But Paul quickly identifies the real issue in verse 22. Have a look with me, verse 22. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. The apostle is very clear what the key issue is in this instance, in this passage. It is despising the church of God. Which when you think about it is a very heavy charge to lay, isn't it? Do you despise the church of God? Is what Paul asks. We might expect such a charge to be levelled at those outside the church, those who mock Christians, those who persecute Christians. But Paul is levelling this charge at those within the church. Do you despise the church of God? To appreciate the weight of that question, we need to remember what Paul wrote way back in chapter 3 and verse 16. Stick your finger in chapter 11 and come back to chapter 3 and verse 16 with me. Chapter 3, verse 16. Chapter 3, verse 16. Let me read. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. He's talking there to the group, the church at Corinth. He's not talking to an individual. He's talking to them collectively. They are God's temple. God's spirit dwells within them and anyone who destroys God's temple, God will destroy them. The church of Corinth, you see, just like evening church, is the church of God. He owns it. His spirit dwells within it, within us. It is precious to him. It is sacred. And to damage his church is to invite his anger, is to invite his judgment. And so back in chapter 11, our passage tonight, back in chapter 11, when Paul says, do you despise the church of God? That is a weighty and a terrifying charge to lay. So what was it then about the Corinthian gatherings that had so attracted the apostles' condemnation? What was happening? Well, Paul explains what he means there in verse 22, doesn't he? In verse 22, he says, Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? How are the Corinthians despising the church of God? By humiliating those who have nothing. 
In other words, it is the lack of love within the church. It is the lack of unity and care that made the Corinthian church so unhealthy. You see, it would seem that within the Corinthian church, there was a division, a gulf between those who were rich and those who were not, between those who had much and those who had nothing. And that division, that gulf was emphasised, exaggerated, if you like, highlighted better in their gathering when they ate together. Where there should have been unity, there was division. And where there should have been equality, there was discrimination. And where there should have been love and mercy and care, there was selfishness and pride. The haves of the Corinthian church were being favoured and the have-nots were being passed over. And that fits really, doesn't it, with what we've seen so far in this letter. The Corinthians were overly influenced by the culture of their day, a culture that honoured prestige and status and wealth and influence. And within the church we've seen the existence of the so-called strong and the so-called weak. And we've read of their divisions and their, and their factions. And all those things seem to have been played out when they came together as the whole church. See, the churches in those days met in houses. And it seems likely that the Corinthian church would have met it mainly in smaller house groups and then came together as the whole church on occasions like Paul's talking about here. And in that larger gathering, those who had nothing were being humiliated. They were being passed over. How exactly that was happening, Paul doesn't say. It could have been the best food was being served to the wealthy in greater portions. It may have been that the wealthy were simply eating first without any regard to their poorer brothers and sisters. But the precise details don't matter that much, really. One had so little they remained hungry, Paul says. The other had so much they got drunk. But all of that was just a symptom, just a symptom of a tragic and terrible lack of love, lack of humility in their fellowship. And so the apostle has no praise for them at all. Now, in many ways, this error is the same as the same error we've seen all the way through the letter, isn't it? The way of the Corinthians was the way of their world, was the way of pride, the way of selfishness. And like we've seen in response to that, the apostle has been urging them to instead pursue another way, the most excellent way, the way of love, the way of Christ. And their coming together, Paul says, exposes just how far short they were falling from this most excellent way. And you know what made it even worse? What made it even worse was that it seems that at least part of their meal was to remember and to celebrate the death of Jesus for them. See, the apostle, when he was with them, when he was in Corinth, planting the church, sharing the gospel, he passed on to them the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples in the upper room the night before Jesus died. The words and the actions that symbolised the importance and the meaning of Jesus' death. And the Corinthians, you see, they gathered to share a communal meal as the whole church, so as to remember that sacrifice, so as to remember those words. And yet the way they behaved in their communal meal was completely at odds with what they were remembering, with what they were celebrating. And that's why Paul says in verse 20, in verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. The word supper there is really the word for what we would call the evening meal. 
You see what Paul's saying? This meal that you share, it's not the Lord's. How could it be when their behaviour, when by their behaviour, they demonstrated that they despised the church of God and humiliated those who had nothing? When they came together, it wasn't the Lord's meal they, they ate. For the way of the Lord is the way of love. The way of the Lord is the way of sacrifice. And so as to correct them, Paul reminds them once more of that meal that the Lord Jesus shared with his disciples that night before he died. Point two on your outline and verse 23. Let me read. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, on that night before his death, he shared the Passover meal with his disciples. The Passover meal was the meal instituted by the Lord God many hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. In Egypt, through Moses, to the Israelites, before their great rescue from slavery before the Exodus. And year after year, beyond the Exodus, the people of God were to share this Passover meal and to remember with thanksgiving the salvation of the Lord. And as the items of food and wine were served, the story of the Passover, the story of the Exodus from Egypt was retold every time. But you know what? On the occasion of Jesus sharing that particular Passover meal with his disciples on that particular night. He told them not the story of a past redemption, a past rescue. On that occasion, he told them the story of a future redemption, a future rescue, infinitely greater even than the great exodus from Egypt. He told them the story of his own death to take place the very next day. He took the bread, you see, and he broke it and then said, for the first time ever at a Passover meal, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, I don't know, but I wonder at the reaction of the disciples at that point. This was a meal they would have shared every year their whole life. Jesus' words are wrong. Jesus' body, broken for us in remembrance of him. And then, of course, he did something similar, didn't he, with the cup of wine. Listen how the apostle tells it in verse 25. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You see, the Passover meal was part of the old covenant, The covenant, the contract made between the Lord and those who had come out of Egypt. The covenant that was repeatedly broken and disobeyed by the Israelites. But through the prophets like Jeremiah, the Lord had promised a new covenant where he says he would write his law on the hearts of his people. A new covenant where his people would be his people and and he would be their God. Where the sins of the people would be forgiven and remembered no more. And Jesus that night, 
wanted his disciples to know that in his death the very next day, when he shed his blood the very next day, he would do so to bring in that new covenant. Through his shed blood, he would make a new people, a forgiven people, a people rescued from slavery to sin and death. It's astonishing, isn't it? Lots of us know these truths, but it's astonishing that Jesus, the Son of God, would do such a thing. My body, broken for you. My blood, shed for you. Astonishing that Jesus, the Son of God, would die such a death for you. I want to read you some other scriptures that might help us to have the proper astonishment. We're going to pop them up on the overhead. The references are on your sheet. Firstly from Luke. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Or in Philippians chapter 2, the apostle writes this of Jesus. Who being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Well, the Apostle Peter, in his first letter, writes of Jesus. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Whereas we've seen as we've been looking at 1 John together, he wrote, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Not yet, Wes. Sorry. Astonishing, don't you think? Wonderful. Such love. Such sacrifice. That's the way of Christ. That's the way of love. And that is seen supremely in his death for us. That's why it's a death to be remembered. That's why it's a death to be celebrated. And it is a death to be proclaimed. Verse 26. Verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, for the Israelites, the Passover meal served as a way of reminding them of the great salvation event of the Old Testament. But as Christians, we have a far greater salvation to remember and to celebrate and to proclaim. And that's why ever since that first meal shared by Jesus with his disciples that night before his death, ever since then, really, Christians have gathered around a meal to eat the bread and to drink the cup so as to remember and to celebrate and to proclaim. The name for the meal might differ. The details of the meal might differ. But Paul reminds both the Corinthians and us here in verse 26 that to eat the bread 
and to drink the cup is to make a statement about the death of Jesus. It is to proclaim his death until he comes. It is to proclaim his saving death of sacrificial love. And as we share communion in a little while, that's what we'll be doing. We'll be declaring the saving death of Jesus. We'll be acknowledging that it is only by his death that we can be saved. We'll be remembering that he allowed his sinless, perfect body to be broken and condemned for us. We'll be celebrating that our sins can be forgiven because Jesus willingly died in our place. We'll be proclaiming his death. And we will continue to proclaim his death until he comes again. For though he died, he rose again and he ascended. And now he reigns as our Lord. And when he returns, he will gather his saved people. And all the benefits of his saving death that are now ours by faith will then be ours in full. And we will see him face to face, our saviour and our king. And we will be ushered into the new creation that he will have prepared for us. Won't that be great? Come Lord Jesus. And it is all ours because of his death for us. A death worth remembering and celebrating and proclaiming. Yet you see, that is exactly where the Corinthians had gone astray. Their meal was totally at odds with what they were remembering and celebrating and proclaiming. It wasn't the Lord's Supper that they were eating. Of course, their meal just revealed how unaffected their fellowship was by the love of Christ. And Paul has no praise for them. And so he goes on in our passage to apply the correction. Point three on your outline and verse 27. Let me read. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Any way you read it, that is a serious warning that must be heeded. To be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord is to be avoided at all costs. And because it is such a serious warning, we've got to be certain about what Paul intends by it. What does he mean by eating or drinking in an unworthy manner? Well, it's clear in the context, isn't it? The Corinthians are models of unworthiness. Whereas their fellowship should have been shaped by the sacrificial love seen so clearly in the death of Jesus, their fellowship was stained with selfishness and boasting and discrimination. It was totally unworthy of the death of Jesus. And they needed to recognize that. They needed to repent of that. Verse 28. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. You see, self-examination was needed among the Corinthians. Testing. They needed to hold up their attitudes and their behaviors up against the cross of Christ. And they needed to see how far short they were falling. Why? Verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, I probably need to just pause at this point and draw attention to something. Because you'll often hear these verses, 27, 28, and 29, used in a communion service, um, especially before the bread and the wine are served, 
and they are read as a call to serious self-reflection about the state of my Christian life. Am I worthy to take communion tonight? Are there sins in my life obstructing me taking part in communion tonight? Am I spiritually ready to take communion tonight? And it often leads, those questions often lead to a very individualised introspection, looking within, measuring my worth to take communion. Now please hear me clearly at this point. I reckon self-examination is always worthwhile. And I think it is always worthwhile to test and to measure the seriousness with which I am living for Jesus. However, can I suggest there are at least two things wrong with such a call as I'm describing? The first is that such a call can often undermine the very thing that is being remembered and celebrated and proclaimed, the grace of God seen in the death of of Jesus. You see, Christ in his life and Christ in his death receives sinners. That's what he does. And yet so often the call that I'm talking about is delivered in such a way that it seems unless I can get rid of the sin in my life, I'm not worthy to take communion. But of course that is the exact opposite of Jesus. But the other more significant problem with the sort of call I'm describing is that it's not what Paul is urging in these verses. Paul's concern is much more with the corporate, with the group, than with the individual. Paul's measure of worthiness is entirely caught up with how someone thinks and acts towards the other people in his, his or her church family. His emphasis is on the body of the Lord. In verse 29 he says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. The key phrase is, is there, what is the body of the Lord that he's talking about? Well, in verse 27 of chapter 12, he'll tell us. Chapter 12 and verse 27, he'll tell us. He says to the Corinthians, you are the body of Christ and each one of you is part of it. In fact, when Paul originally wrote uh, chapter 11 and verse uh, 29, there is no of the Lord. He just says, if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, he eats and drinks judgment on himself. Some of our translations have just inserted of the Lord. But we need to see that his emphasis is on the body, the group of believers. That is how we test our worthiness, which is exactly what he's been talking about through the whole passage, isn't it? See, we, we very often make communion sort of a very individual spiritual experience, something between me and the Lord. But for the apostle, it should be about us and the Lord and me as part of us. Because you see, the sacrificial love of Christ that we remember and celebrate and proclaim in communion should actually shape our fellowship. Unlike the Corinthians, our fellowship as Evening Church should be characterised by unity and selflessness and humility and love. And there we will see health. There is the test of health. How the sacrificial love of Jesus shapes our fellowship. You know what, in his letter to the Philippians, listen to how Paul describes this fellowship. We'll put it up now, um, Wes, if we can. <coughs> this is from Philippians chapter 2. 
He says this, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's the way of fellowship, for that's the way of love. That is the way of Christ. Well, the Apostle John, in his letter that we've been studying together, he puts it like this in chapter 3. And this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister in need and has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us love, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. See, that's the way of fellowship, for that is the way of love, for that is the way of Christ. And that should be our way, brothers and sisters. As a church family, we should genuinely love one another. Whenever we gather, in whatever setting, we must gather as people whose fellowship genuinely reflects the sacrificial love of Jesus. Our dinners should certainly reflect that, but it's got to go way beyond eating, doesn't it? The whole of our fellowship should imitate the sacrificial love of Jesus. But the Corinthians were falling far short of that. And so Paul warns them of judgment. It's there in verse 29. To eat and drink without recognising the body is to eat and drink judgment on yourself. And see how Paul describes it in verse 30. Verse 30. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. How seriously does the, does the Lord view the proper fellowship of his people? with literally deadly seriousness. The lack of spiritual health within the Corinthian church was impacting on their physical health. Among the Corinthians, you see, there was weakness and sickness and even death. And the apostle, he sees their selfishness 